Oh, good morning, everybody. That was really insufficient. Good morning, everybody. It's better, better, better. Uh, hey, welcome to E3. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome, welcome, welcome you to E3 this morning. Um, it's been a great morning already, and I'm looking forward to seeing what God's going to do in our midst uh, right now in this space that we have. I want to actually start off our time together by showing you guys a movie trailer. This was a movie film that came out a few years back. It's one of my probably top 10, top 15 movies of all time. Um, not not for the only reason that it has uh, the city of Chicago in it. I pretty much am a fan of any, any movie that has Chicago in it. But it's just a really, really beautifully crafted film. It stars Will Ferrell um, and uh, some other folks in it. It's just a great story. So we're going to just cue this thing up and just play it for you guys, and I'll unpack it after that. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Miss Eiffel? Yes. Am I interrupted? Yes. I'm the assistant your publishers hired. The publishers think I have writer's block. Do you have writer's block? I don't know how to kill Harold Crick. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day... Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone! So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. Have you written anything new today? I figured out how to kill Harold Crick. Little did he know that events had been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? Why? Hello? Come on! This woman, Karen Eiffel, one of my favorite authors. Hi. That's her. That's the voice. She's the narrator. Karen Eiffel, my name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. Is this a joke? You have to understand that this isn't a story to me. It's my life. I want to live. I need to speak to Karen Eiffel. I'm one of her characters. I'm sorry? I'm in her new book, and she's going to kill me. Oh. How exciting is that? Yeah. So, uh, anybody seen that film? Just curious. Okay, a few of you guys. Uh, man, if you like movies, go check it out. It's really great. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Emma, um, 
Emma Thompson. There's, there's like another Emma that I always get her confused with. Uh, Queen Latifah, Dustin Hoffman. Great cast, great acting, great story. And if you got the, the, the idea from that trailer, it's about this guy who is waking up to the realization that he's living in a story that somebody is writing. And of course, this crisis happens when he discovers that uh, the author of his story is trying to kill him, and he rebels and tries to find out, you know, how he can avoid this seemingly inevitable ending. And I, I played that trailer actually for E3 years and years ago, but I wanted to play it for you guys again because it gets at the thing that we're really talking about in, during the season, and that is what it means to live in a story. And I, I don't know if you guys ever think about your lives that way, but I do. And, and as, I, as I have learned to live, or uh, learned to understand my life as a story, it just keeps giving more and more and more ideas and life about, about what it means to live my life. Um, and I don't know if you've ever thought of your life as a story, but I would like to suggest that maybe you should begin to. One of my friends uh, reminds, reminded me recently that our lives are lived forward, but they're understood backwards. And what that means is that we live life kind of one day at a time, moving forward all the time. But if you really want to start understanding your life, you really need to look back at your life. And if you're looking at a way to understand your life and you're looking backwards, what often will emerge is that you're living a story. Your life has plot points. Your life has crises. Your life has characters in it. And um, we all live a story that is made up of our experiences, of characters, of decisions that we've made or not made. And I think we all have it. We just don't always think about it. So what I want to do is actually start off by giving you guys some ideas of maybe some stories that you have lived out or maybe people that you know have lived out. And so one story that you might have run across is a story that says this, I'm made up of my achievements. I need to make a name for myself in order to have significance. And if you looked back at your life, you'd be like, well, that's my story. My story is that um, there's, a, there's a gap, there's a hole inside my life that if I don't fill that thing up with, you know, a job promotion or with a, a larger bank account or with something else that I can add to my trophy case, then it feels like I'm empty inside, all right? And then there's another story that might push against that, against that and there was the story that says, hey, I'm loved and significant no matter what. And that story might just, if you looked back at your life, you'd be like, you know what? Actually, um, I feel so secure at the core of my being that if I never if I never got another phone call for a promotion, if I never got recognized for anything that I do, I recognize that my life has inherent worth and I'm okay at the core of my being. That's a good story to live out. Here's another story example. Grab everything you can before it's taken from you. And you might know somebody who lives their life this way. At the core of their being, there's this fear that whatever they've managed to accumulate in their life, whether it's family or money or property or, or stuff, that there's something out there, some force that is coming to take it from you. And so you respond accordingly. And that's the thing about stories is that we behave according to the story that we live in. And if this is your story, it's going to determine decisions you make. 
It's going to determine the way you look at the world and the universe. And an alternate story to this one might be a story that says, look, actually, the more I give away, the more content I become. That rather than having to, to put a fence around my possessions, that the story that I've learned to live out is the story that says, look, actually, the more I release to the world, to other individuals, to other organizations that are doing good in the world, actually, though that pile of possessions gets smaller, I actually feel more content with my life. These stories determine our behaviors. They determine our decisions. They determine our actions. And uh, we're spending three or four weeks right now in the fall talking about story. And um, I had mentioned a couple weeks ago that, that this series is called Origins because it started out of the idea uh, of watching origin stories pr primarily from like Marvel comics you know? And so I remember the first real origin story that I, I saw was uh, Wolverine's or origin story. It's really not a great film, but uh, it's just a story of how he became the Wolverine that we, that we got to know. And, and at its heart, all an origin story does is, is really two things. It tells you if it's a superhero, how'd you get your powers? Or another way to say it is like, what sets you apart? So if you watch any film, really can almost be an origin story. But if you watch the Wolverine origin story, you would look, oh, this is the story of how he got his power. This is what makes him who he is. Well, let me show you what this means. So we're going to just kind of throw, throw some characters up on the screen, right? So the first one we have is Batman. Batman's origin story is actually, it's kind of ironic because actually he doesn't have any powers if you know Batman's story. But what set him apart, what brought him to the place where he was Batman was that what? His parents were what? Murdered. And he was wealthy and he invested in, you know, just making himself into this top-notch crime fighter. And that's what brought him to the point. That's what made him the Batman that we know. Another origin story is uh, Wonder Woman's Amazon princess. And she leaves her uh, kingdom to go help the rest of humanity fight evil. That's what made her who she was. That's how she got her powers. I don't know how she got her lasso of truth, but um, that's how, what made her who she was. Next slide. There's Wolverine. Wolverine's origin story is what? He's a mutant. Uh, his mutant power is that he can heal from anything. And then they fuse his skeleton with this uh, you know, metal thing and spikes come out of his, his uh, hands. And he's got an awesome hairdo. That's how Wolverine got his powers. That's what set him apart. Last slide, please. What's his origin story? How did he get his powers? Anybody? His parents, his, the whole thing with his mother sacrificed herself, you know, in the ultimate act of love. And that's what set Harry Potter apart. We all have these origin stories. We all have something that makes us who we are. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of us have an origin story that we would just look back on our life and say, these are the decisions that I've made or that other people have made. These are the characters in my life. And that has brought me to the place that I'm at today. But the thing is, as a person of faith, the thing is, as a person who is pursuing God, uh, I believe with all my heart that my story, in all its you know, tininess, actually interacts and intersects with God's story. And at the places and the ways that, that they inter intersect, I sometimes need to reevaluate my story 
in the light of God's story. And if I do that, I think that God's story is bigger and better and stronger, if you will, than mine. And so I wanna throw out a premise. It's what I'm calling the thesis of this series. I don't really have theses for, for series all the time, but I want you guys to know where I'm coming from from this series, and that is simply this. As people of faith, our origin story, we are set apart by the themes of creation, fall, call, and covenant. This is our origin story. And these themes, they start in the earliest part of the Bible. They run through the whole story. They're fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then they actually carry on through the end of the Bible and actually into our story right now as people of faith. This is what sets us apart. I don't I hesitate to use the phrase, this is what gives us our powers. But this is our origin story. And so what we're gonna do is spend uh, the next three weeks looking at the earliest stories, the foundational stories of the Bible and seeing how they're played out in the life of Jesus and then how they might impact our story now, here in 2016. So if you have a Bible and you wanna turn to it and you wanna open it up, we're going to be, uh, it's gonna be simple. We're gonna be the right page one of the text, Genesis 1. It's easy to get there, but the scriptures will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. So our, our story starts this way, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, a few things that I wanna let you know. Um, we're gonna be dealing here in this series with kind of big buckets, all right? So you could, you could dive really, really deep into this story of creation, but I wanna be clear, this is not a creation series, it's an origin series. So creation is just part of our origins. We're not gonna be going into the depth of creation that maybe we could or that some of you might wish. Creation is just part of our origin story. So that's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to know is kind of pulling the, pulling the, the, the hood back on how we interact with the text of the Bible is interesting to me. And if you were to look at the Hebrew in Genesis 1 uh, verses 1 and 2, you would instantly know that we have, I wouldn't call it a controversy, but we have a decision on our hands that can impact the way we understand creation. But it says something really cool about the text. And what I mean by that is um, the text of Genesis 1 that we have in the New Living Translation, this is the translation we use mostly around E3, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. That's what Genesis 1 uh, one and two read in the New Living. But if you looked at the text in a different translation, for instance, the NRSV, which is just another translation, it's a good translation. It says, it says it this way. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void. And what I want you to remember or to realize is that the original language of Genesis is Hebrew. And Hebrew is a word-poor language, meaning they have a very small number of words that have to describe an awful lot of things. So you might run across a Hebrew word, and we're gonna run across one in a, in, a, in a bit, that can mean five, six, eight different things. And so when the translators come across these words, they have to make decisions. Well, based on the context, based on what we understand about God, 
what does this mean? And what, the, what is set up in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 in the Hebrew is actually a decision about, did the earth exist as a, as a, as a formless void when God created? Or did the earth already exist when God started creating the earth? And did he just start working with it? Now, in my mind, these are the types of things where I'm like, I don't know. God knows, and I'll know someday when I meet God. But I don't need to know these things right now. They are a, a, a part of our origin story, but not the main idea of our origin story. So going on, verse three, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was, this is an important word, light was what? Good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God, God called the light day and the darkness night. And the evening passed and the morning came, marking the first day. So another important thing that I want you guys to take away from this. The Hebrew word for day is the word yom. Let me hear you say yom. Y-O-M. Now, Hebrew, word poor language. Yom can mean day. It can also mean light as opposed to darkness. It can also mean month. It can also mean year. It can also mean an open-ended period of time. Okay? And buried in that is something that's very, very important for us to understand about our creation story. Okay? Genesis is not a science textbook. It is not meant to address the issues of modern science, though I will say the very, very frontiers of modern science actually have more in line with biblical spirituality than what you might think. But you see, Genesis is not out there to say um, it's, it's a seven day like we would understand day. It could be seven weeks. It could be seven years. It could be 7,000 years. The Hebrew is open-ended. And can I just tell you that this is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about the text because the text actually can be stretched. And you can get in, you're like, well, this word, man, this word doesn't always mean what I think it means. And the Bible just holds up to almost everything you throw at it. And you just go and you're like, well, I didn't know that word meant that. But you come away with the story of like, man, the story is still the same, even though the words sometimes you have to wrestle through. So the, the, the scientific account, um, Genesis is not there to describe exactly a scientific account of creation. It's actually there to do something very, very different. Because see, in the ancient Near East where uh, Genesis was written, there were actually many creation stories that were written. Almost every tribe and every nationality had a creation story. And, and I wanna tell you, a lot of them read very similarly to, to Genesis. They have very, very similar flavors, right? And the thing about Genesis is that this little tribe of Israelite Hebrew people, they're like, you know what? Everybody else has a creation story. We need one too. But you know what's different about our creation story? God. That's what's different about our creation story. The text says, Genesis 1, in the beginning, who created God created. The name for God in Genesis 1 is Elohim. And what I've basically said is this. The creation story is not primarily concerned with how or when or why things were created. It's concerned with who created it. That's the point of the text. 
let me tell you, essentially is what the Hebrews are saying. Let me tell you who actually we think really created all this. It's a guy named Elohim. Elohim is, is, is a word that means most high. It's a name for God that's used in the Old Testament. And they're saying, look, we get how you guys think the world is created. They're looking at their neighbors. We understand how you think the world is created. We understand who you think created. But let me tell you, according to us, we actually think that it's a guy named Elohim, God, the most high. He's the one that created it, not any of the other gods around. And I think it's really interesting how this little tribe of Hebrews, really obscure little number of people, and thousands of years later, guess what? We're sitting here telling their story. And I would actually say that the, the evidence of time actually says, boy, I think they were right that Elohim did create all this. And that brings us to sort of what I'm, what I'm calling our first plot point. Like what's the takeaway of the creation story, of the creation theme? And it's simply this, that we live in a created world that God designed. And what's more, he calls it what? good. And I think it's important because if you're like me, I can look at the world around me and I can find a lawful lot that falls into the category of not good. But what the text tells me is that God created this. I didn't. And when he created it, he's like, this is a good thing. And so my default towards creation needs to be good. But he doesn't stop there. That's just the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. Seems like a good idea, God. And that's what happened. He made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heaven. And God called this space sky, which is a great name. And evening passed and morning came, marking the second yom day. And so uh, we're up to day two. Day one was light and day. Day two is sky. Okay. And since this isn't a creation series, uh, I feel kind of guilty about doing this, but not too guilty. We're going to skip the rest of the days of creation for a while because it's a repeating cadence. So we go day three, he makes the land and vegetation. He says, it's good. He says, star, sun, and moon is creating. It's good. He creates fish and birds. That brings us to a very special day in creation. Genesis 1, 24, sixth day. God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, love those animals, and wild animals, and that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was what? Good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the animals on the earth, and all those small animals scurrying along the ground. You can't forget about them. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's actually a second account of creation in the book of Genesis. The first account goes through Genesis 1. The second account begins at the beginning of Genesis 2. It's a slightly different telling of the creation story. 
and it digs even deeper to this very event of Genesis. So before we go on, I wanna read the text of Genesis 2, starting in verse four. It says, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the heaven and earth. Now, what just happened? The first, Genesis 1 says God made the earth. Genesis 2 adds another descriptor to this name of this God. So now it's Lord God. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Elohim. So now it's not just, just the most high God. Now it's, no, 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 even more specific. Jehovah Elohim is the one who made all this. So he did these things. He created, uh, he made the earth and the heavens. Neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. that description of the creation of humanity is so intimate. You know, the very God of creation sitting down with some dust and arranging it. And then he bends over and he breathes his breath to, to make that dust come to life. And let me just tell you, if you were to go back and read some of the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the creation of humanity doesn't look anything like this. This is another critical difference between the vision that we live in versus the vision of kind of what the other ancient Near Eastern creation stories would say. Because a lot of times they're like, you know what? These gods, they were, they were really tired of working. They, were, they had been uh, fighting and doing battle all the time. And they were like, you know what? We need some... We need some creatures to give us a break from our work, so let's create humanity. Uh, there's one vision of like, um, there's some dust and then a God like stabs another God and they bleed out blood and they stir out, you know, and then in that, then a, a human being is created. And it appears that the vision of the biblical God is one of care and intimacy and breathing into so that brings us to our second plot point. And that is simply this, that uh, we are intimately created representations of God. You see, Genesis 1, 26 has this word in it that says, let's make human beings in our, anybody remember? Image. image. Now the Greek word for image is icon. An icon represents you know, the original, uh, the original form. In Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, theology, you, you look at an icon and you actually learn to see through the icon to the vision of God that is behind it. But we're not in Greek, we're in Hebrew. And uh, the word in Hebrew is tselem. And tselem is an interesting word because it can mean image. But it has also a really, really particular view that I think is really interesting. You see, if you were the king in, in the ancient Near East and you reigned over a land, you would go and put statues of yourself through the land. And every time someone would see that statue, they were meant to understand who's in charge of this place. 
So you would be walking around the country that was ruled by a, a king and you would see his image and that was meant to say, oh, this is the person who reigns in this place. You know what those statues were called in Hebrew? Selem. So God says, let us make an icon of ourselves, but also let us make something that when people look at that person, they see who's in charge of this land. They don't just see an Eric. They're meant to see a representation of who the Lord of the land is, of who the king is. That's the vision that we live out, an intimately created representation of God. There's one last uh, plot point that brings us all the way to day six. Uh, animals, human, God looks at everything. He says, hey, it's very good, very good. And then um, we're not through yet with the creation account. So I wanna go back actually. He says, verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky. And there they are again all the animals that scurry along the ground. And in this text, he actually says it in, in the creation in verses uh, 24 through 26, but he also says this word, look, he's like, I've created you and now you have a job to do. He says, govern the earth, reign over this place. And this brings us to sort of our last plot point that we're gonna interact with today because the last plot point is simply this. We are intimately created representations of God who are created to govern. But this is critical to understand. We can't just govern in any old way. You see, a lot of people would look at this and they're like, oh man, I get to reign over this place. I guess I'm gonna rule it and I'm gonna rule it the way I would wanna rule it. So animals that scurry over the ground, why don't you guys all bring me plates full of nachos and pizza? Or we could do that with any other created being. But actually God says, that's not the way you can reign. You can only reign the way the king reigns. And in my life, I believe that if I wanna understand what reigning really looks like, I am called to look at the life of Jesus Christ, who with Jesus, reigning looks an awful lot like serving. You ever read Jesus's life? Jesus is like, you know what? You wanna to learn to reign? Actually, what you need to learn to do is to serve. And so we're called to reign, but we are only called to reign in the way that Jesus reigns because that is the fulfillment of sort of our biblical call. So this is our origin story. This is the first part of our origin story. We live in a created environment that is called good. We are the icons of God. And we are called to reign. But I said, all of these things are, are brought to their fulfillment in Jesus. And so what does that mean? Well, to, that, to, to unpack that in the last couple minutes we have, uh, I, would, I would invite you to turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John has some really interesting things to say about Jesus and creation. And it starts right from the get-go because John starts his story of Jesus like this. In the beginning, does that sound familiar to anybody? In the beginning, the word already, already existed. And the word here means Jesus. That's, that's Jesus's eternal sort of existence with God. 
The word was with God and the word was God. He existed, there it is again, in the beginning with God, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. What's our first plot point of Genesis? Who, who did what? God created. And then all of a sudden here's John again saying, you know what? There's this creation thing going on in Jesus's life. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life. Is life wrapped up in the story of Genesis? The word gave life to everything that was, there it is again, created. And his life brought light to everything. Is light involved in the story of Genesis? One of the first things God does. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. John is saying, look, in Jesus' life, there's a Genesis thing going on. John is saying Genesis doesn't just end at at Genesis 2, when the story is over. Creation actually is somehow going on in the midst of Jesus's life. And he unpacks that in another really awesome way. You see, uh, what a lot of theologians understand John as, as, to be, as have this division, these different subdivisions of John's gospel. And one of the ways it's divided is this thing called the book of signs. And these are wrapped around Jesus's miracles. So in John 2, Jesus turns water into wine and John says, that's the first sign. And then Jesus heals an official son and John says, oh, that was the second sign. And then there are these other miracles and do you know that by the time you get done looking at Jesus's signs in the gospel of John, you get seven. How many days are there in creation? Seven. John is, is drawing this fascinating uh, connection between Genesis 1 and Jesus' life. So in John 5, Jesus heals a guy in, in Beth, uh, Bethesda. Uh, a lot of people think the, the, the fourth sign is feeding the 5,000. Fifth, walking on water. Sixth, healing a man born blind. And then the seventh sign is a guy named Lazarus who is dead. And Jesus goes to him and resurrects him and breathes essentially life into him. Does that sound a little bit like Genesis? The culmination of, of, of dust coming to life and Jesus bringing somebody back to life. Here's what I'd like to suggest is going on in the fulfillment of Genesis with John. It's basically this. God is renewing creation through Jesus's life. Genesis is like happening again in Jesus's life. And that's crazy cool. And then the corollary to that for me is that the closer you get to Jesus, the more life you experience. You wanna see some Genesis 1 creation stuff going on? You wanna see light shining through the darkness? Get close to Jesus and see what happens. And by the way, John doesn't stop there because it's actually better than Genesis 1. Because a lot of theologians would say, you know what, there's actually eight signs in John. That he arranges it intentionally to say, there's these seven signs, but you know what the eighth sign is? It's resurrection. And so John's actually saying, it's not just Genesis all over again. It's like Genesis plus one. 
And so if you want to get close to the, 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 the flood and the stream of what Genesis and life and creation looks like, you want to try that out? Get close to Jesus. So that's the big story. And I know it's a lot to take in. And so what I want to do is bring it right back down to right here, where we're at today. What's this mean? I want to just offer you a few questions to think about. Maybe today, maybe unpack them in your growth group. First question is this. What does it mean that we live in a world that God declares good? As I was thinking about this this morning, it means that my posture towards creation needs to be one of wonder and looking for the goodness in the world. Because look, again, I can always opt for the badness. It's not hard to find, especially during an election cycle. So sit and breathe in the reality that God created this world and said, you know what? I know what things look like, but it's good. And for me, that means cultivating wonder, whether it's like seeing trees or seeing other aspects of creation, which brings me to the next point. What does it mean that I am an intimately created reflection and icon of God? Actually, what I want to turn this around and say, what does it mean that everybody you encounter is an intimately created reflection and icon of God? You will never lock eyes with somebody who is not created by God. You will never lock eyes with anybody who does not bear God's reflection inside them. And I know it's easy to sink into this, this way of thinking of like, well, you know, this group of people, I'm really good at seeing God's reflection in them, but these people over here, I'm not so sure. That's not the way it works. Our story says everybody bears God's image. And it's us, it's up to us to look at them and go, man, where's the trace of the divine spark inside you? Because it's there. We all have it. And then relatedly, some of the people that we lock eyes with that we have trouble seeing that are the people that we look into a mirror and see. And part of my story has been involved with understanding that I am intimately created and loved by God. And I am made in God's image. Because I'm gonna be honest, there are parts of my life that don't feel like a very beautiful reflection of God's image. And it's very easy for me to buy into that lie that God somehow made a mistake when he made me. So I lock eyes with that guy and I learn to say, he's made, I am made in his God's image. He formed me somehow, right? He breathed life into me. Next question. Ooh, how am I doing reigning? And what needs to change so that I can reign like Jesus? Speaking to two categories of people. Some of you guys have never wrapped your heads around the fact that you're called to reign and, and govern in God's name. So you go to church, you know, you're gonna go to heaven, you're in a growth group, but you've never said, you know, what would it look like if I exerted some God-appropriate authority in my job? What if I told the truth to my friends? What if I spoke up in the name of justice? What if I spoke up in the name of love and compassion? That's what it means to rule and reign. So basically what I'm saying is that some of us were created, but we've been sitting on the sidelines for decades. 
And God's like, That's, I didn't call you. I didn't create you to sit on the sidelines. I created you to get in the game. So what would it mean to get in the game? And then for the other category of people, maybe you're reigning right now, but maybe your reigning doesn't look an awful lot like Jesus. So maybe your reigning is involved a little bit more with manipulation or anger or power or control. What would it mean for you to go, I need to govern the way Jesus said to govern? Last question. How much life am I experiencing? How close to Jesus am I? Because I believe what I said about Jesus' life. Genesis 1, an explosion of life and vitality is happening close to Jesus. And so a lot of times I found myself in my life uh, experiencing some doldrums. Some doesn't look, like, doesn't look like Genesis 1. I don't know. It looks like something else entirely. But I realize that part of it is because I'm not very close to Jesus. So how close are you to him? Are you you walking with him? Because I think walking with Jesus is one of the most exciting places to be. And can you draw near? Are you experiencing that Genesis 1 creative life? That's our origin story as regards to creation. That's what it means to live this thing out. I am created by God as an intimate part of his reflection. The world is good. Jesus brings new life to this place and I am called to remake and to govern this place in God's name, in God's ways. Our origin story is not over. We're writing our own chapter of it now. We're called to do this now. And I hope that as we go on through this series that that this stuff will, will just start to invade your life so that you realize that Who we've been created to be is still going on. And we've been handed a story to live into. And some of us need to adjust our lives in light of that story. And some of us need to live into it. That's what my hope and my prayer is for us. Let's stand for closing prayer.